Jacob Chastain, I've got a question for you. My question is, you have started a whole new aspect of education that I have never been a part of, other than I got close, but I've never been a principal. What has been your most challenging thing so far as uh, doing this in this new position? What's your most challenging thing so far that you've discovered? I don't know. There's a lot of challenging things. It really is my, I mean, for me personally, so I, I, I'm going to answer this in two ways I feel like there's a, there's a professional one and then there's one that's more just kind of connected to me, so to speak, which is, so the one that's like on me is the biggest challenge that I'm having is being lost at all times. So just like, you know, cause I was very comfortable. I was at that, our campus for however many years I would worked my way up. I had seen the good times, the bad times, the, the best of times, the worst of times I'd seen it all through there. And I felt very confident, uh, in everything I did. So every day was like, I knew what I needed to do. There was a rare occasion where I had to kind of ask a question, right? And even even kind of in teaching to where, you know, we might ask questions of each other, but I felt good about what I was doing. It was a very, it was a process I had come to know and love. And so jumping into this, it's almost like a restart because it's an entirely different job. Now they overlap in a lot of ways, which I'll talk about in a second, but it's, uh, it's, it's literally me all day going, I don't know what that is. I don't know how to do that. Can you show me how to do that? I have no idea. I'll find out for you. Like over and over and over again. (laughs) And I'm very grateful that uh, I work with a strong team and my secretary is awesome. She's been doing uh, assistant principal secretary for a while now. So she's got her own little systems and stuff. And she's even walked in there a few times just like, hey, I have a better system for that. Just stop. And then she'll send me like this beautiful spreadsheet. And so it's really cool and awesome. And so there's a lot of people there, but I would say that's, that's like a personal thing that I'm having to, that I have challenge with because, you know, I just, I I like being in the know. I like being self-sufficient and it's hard to be self-sufficient when you don't know things. So, um, there is that piece, but on a, on a professional note, I think the, the most difficult thing about, what I am currently doing has everything to do with trying to balance my time when my time isn't guaranteed. And so what I mean is just because something's scheduled doesn't mean it's going to happen because something else might happen. So I'll give you an example. On Friday, I had a couple things. I literally walked into Friday with a relatively blank schedule. Now I say relative because there's, there's things I have to do, but in general, I was like, Oh, you know, this is going to be kind of a nice Friday. We have a football game later. It's going to be good. We'll go up to that. It'd be a nice start to a long weekend, but lo and behold, within 30 minutes of being there, um, some kids got busted in, uh, the bathroom. So I had to do a drug search on, uh, one of my students. Luckily he didn't have any, he wasn't really a part of it. it happened before him. I had a kid get caught with a vape. So I had to deal with that just a little bit later Then I had lunch duties and everything else. Um, and then we dealt with a custody issue that took up quite a bit of time towards the end of the day. And so all of those things, those take time because you have to you know, you have to do your due diligence. You have to investigate in all of this. And 
And there's that's on top of like, you know, being in the hallways during passing period, responding to a teacher, responding to however many emails. So that the professional part is in my head, I know that I want to be a strong instructional leader. I want to see classrooms. I want to know students. I want to know what's happening. I want to know where we're at in the curriculum, et cetera, et cetera. But balancing all of that with the randomness that comes up throughout the day, um, I think is the. It's the hardest part so far, in my opinion, because I have a vision of the kind of principal I want to be, and I feel like I have to be very intentional with how I handle certain things and where I spend my time. So it's, it's a, it is an interesting act because I don't know if people are aware of this, but I'm actually really bad at time management. I mean, we're, I, I just, that's what I do. I'm not a, I'm, I'm a very <clears throat> procrastinator type of person. I got to tell you that, that does not work well in the, in the principal world. So you kind of have to, you have to be ahead of the curve. So, um, it's yep. interesting. I've, I had a lot of fun though. I had, uh, the last three days of this last week were super fun and, and all the complexities that were going down, but I got to tell you there's challenges galore miss ochoa well you know that's one of the things that i there's a memory that i have it was years ago when i was at my second school and i'm i had a pretty rough day that particular day but then i also had some good things that day and i and i wasn't a principal so i wasn't seeing all that you see but just in your classroom there's so many different variants that can happen like you've got one thing planned but you have a fire alarm, you have a lockdown drill, you have a fight, you have a, you know, all these different things could happen to derail you. And so, but I remember walking down these stairs, going into the next hallway, and I was thinking to myself, one thing about this job, there's never the same day twice. I've been in this job for 30 something years, and I've never had the same day twice. I never have. So I can't imagine having a whole school. You definitely can't have the same day twice. That's what I'm saying because I, you know, I'm seeing all the aspects, right? You know, in in one ear we're hearing about a door that's having a problem, and in the other ear we're hearing about a parent that's at the front that has a concern. I got three emails of people responding because they're trying to get follow ups on stuff on top of getting T-test waiver signed, scheduling all the T-test stuff, popping into classrooms just to be in there, responding to a concern that someone had. And it's just like, wow. I mean, I, it's funny is I actually, in those moments, I feel better. It's like, it's almost like when I'm in a class and I'm conferring with a bunch of students all at once, that, that controlled chaos is, mm-hmm. is really my happiest place. So the principalship in in that aspect is it's challenging, but that's the part that's that's interesting to me. The the part that I'm just trying to hone in is, you know, in a classroom, I know where the where the focus is going. And so that's where I'm trying to get in this principal role is be like, okay, all of this is happening, but towards what direction? You know what I mean? Yep. Well, there you go, everybody. <laughs> this is craft and draft. <laughs> That's Jacob Chastain over there, Mr. Principal, sir, and just a teacher, Mrs. Ochoa, Pam Ochoa over here. Just kidding about just a teacher. We are not just a teacher. We are life changers. That's what we are. That's right. So tell us the rest of it, Jacob. Well, well, this is the Craft and Draft Podcast, post-podcast every single Friday. Talking about Reading Writer Workshop, we take questions from you guys. We take questions from our Patreon supporters, which, speaking of, this podcast really only exists because of them. They support us. They keep the lights on. They do all of that. And we have just had a new person join us. So let's go ahead. We'll read out 
Reynolds, um, our Patreon supporters who are supporting us this month. They are Alicia, Brandy, Leah, Mark, Amy, Rebecca, Courtney, Carol, Melissa, Destiny, Lori, Natalie, Susan, Tracy, and Andrea, who is our newest supporter over there at the Listener Plus tier. Thank Hi. you very much. Love it uh, so much that we just keep seeing more and more of you. And here's the thing. Speaking of more and more... Our podcast downloads, Miss Ochoa, for this last month, it was it was basically a record-breaking month. We had awesome. bigger downloads than we've had in a long time. We had this one month that was just really big, and we can't decide if it's a fluke or not. So we can either say this is the second biggest month of downloads we've ever had, speaking of August, or the first. I don't know where we want to land on that, because I thought that was a fluke, but this one was pretty close. So... Regardless, of more and more of you are listening, y'all are sharing, and it really shows in August. So we see the numbers. We thank you so much. We've also hit 30 reviews over there on Apple Podcasts. So we thank you for rating and reviewing. That really does help other educators find it when they're in their podcast app and they Google workshop or English teacher or teacher podcast. You know, we want them to find Craft and Draft and know that it is worth the worth their time. So if you haven't rated it already or reviewed or whatever you do, go ahead and do that. That way it just lets everyone know, especially if you're enjoying it, if you're enjoying it, why not do that? It's a very small way of supporting. If you want to do extra support, go to Patreon where you can get exclusive content, including bonus episodes no one hears, bonus trainings, and access to discounted trainings, and so much more. Also, some fancy graphics that Miss Ochoa has posted. So <laughs> everyone loved them over there. You know, it was it was what they needed. They were all excited. I think that was our biggest hit was you over there. So people have to sign up for that access. But today... We're going we're gonna to answer a question about um, kind of so, some publishing stuff, and then we're going to sway into the complex world of grammar teaching. I'm sure teachers all over the place, whether they've been in school for a few weeks or they're just now starting, every plight of an English teacher is going, oh my God, why aren't they using periods or capitalizations or anything like this? And then everyone has their way of either going about this or districts have their way of going about this. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about all all of the ways that we've uh, maybe mishandled grammar and done well, what works for us, um, and just see where that conversation goes. But welcome to Craft and Draft. All righty, Miss Ochoa. Um, let's let's do this question first. You want to start with the question? Sure. <sighs> take a take a nice deep breath so I can give our friend Marissa, the the time she needs. So it says, I have been thinking a lot about grading more authentic writing. I have found that student process pieces that include conferences, strategy groups, and peer review turn out final writing pieces that score much higher than if these tools weren't utilized in our workshop classroom. Since standard-based grading isn't an option, how can I make my grades more valid? On the answer listener question episode, you mentioned a rubric you use that, a sec, uh, that has a section where students indicate what lesson they applied. Maybe this could be something that could help. Would you be willing to share a copy of that rubric? And or do you have any other suggestion to make my writing grades more authentic to a student's independent, mastered abilities? Thank you for your time, and I look forward to an insight. That is Marissa, another fifth grade educator down there. You fifth grade teachers really do keep this podcast alive and rolling and well. So there's a couple of questions when when Pam and I were reading this. There's a, we just had a couple of questions. So let's let's go through this together. So what she says I'm I'm assuming she's saying when we're conferencing and there's strategy groups and peer review, their writing pieces are turning out better 
But for some reason, she says standard-based grading isn't an option. I don't know if that's because of her limitations, but let's be clear here, Miss Ochoa. When we grade riding and the riding, the type of grading we encourage is always based on the standard, correct? Yeah, uh, we are always basing it on the standard because what we're teaching is from our standards. Yes. So then... Um, While you were reading it, this question, I did have some memory of doing some actual lessons on some actual professional development on this particular question uh, years ago. But uh, one of the things that we do in in our Abydos and some things that I do in the classroom, and that is... We go back over, and you kind of do this as well, uh, maybe in a different way, but we go back over everything as a review. What are all the things we taught? And so the students will start listing everything they've learned about writing in this particular segment. So if I'm doing personal narrative, then they'll pull out things like, you know, a moment in time, uh, you know, in your life. Um, they might pull out, it follows a storyline, it follows a plot, it has characters, it has, you know, whatever they're doing. And so they'll list all these things that we've we've studied. Is setting important? Yeah, setting's important, you know. So you just keep keep going. Do you have to, you know, then you can talk about the writing itself. Uh, you know, what have we learned about with punctuation? Or what have we learned about with capitalization? What have we, you know, whatever you were working on, you kind of help the kids brainstorm, but you do this big, huge brainstorm of everything that uh, the students have learned. Now, if you want to break that up where it's not one big, huge group assi- uh, class assignment, you could put them in groups, and then that's what they—that's their question. And as a group, they talk about it, and then that group can share out one person from the table. So you can divide that work up any way you want to get everybody more involved. But the point is, all of those things are standard-based. You can look and see. And then you can say, okay, out of all of these things, how do you want to be graded? And then the students actually play a role in what they think we should be looking for. If I'm grading your paper, out of all these things we've learned, what needs to be in your paper? And how many points or does it have a lot of weight? Does it not? You know, and so you can actually involve the students in the grading process. And but just make sure that when you do that, it goes back to like with your craft and draft. If you've been writing your standard at the top, they go back into their mini lessons, they pull up the standards. So when you if you put them in a group and they're working, that's what they could be doing. Somebody could be the you know, you have a scribe, you can have a leader, you can have, you know, if you like to do roles, you know, some people like to do that. You could have somebody that are two people with the actual research, their craft book out, and they're, they're looking for the lessons that we've all learned. And then what are the standards? So you could find the standard bearer and you could um, have the person actually finding the pages. And then that's what they're working on. And they turn that in. And based on that, you come up with your rubric and you could create a class rubric that way. So that's one thing that I've done to help make it a little more authentic or more valid. Yeah. So my thing with this is the number one thing that I try to do is in a unit, let's say we're doing, I don't know, we're really working on figurative language for two weeks and it, if you're working on figurative language or anything like that, let's say for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, whatever, those standards in that unit that I'm hitting 
I hold my students accountable for when they turn in their writing, they need to show evidence that they're using those standards. They, in in some way, now they don't have to use all of them. This isn't like a a checkoff list, Um, but they need to show that they're using pieces that we've looked at. So the model pieces that I'm showing them, which is aligned to the standards because I'm picking them and they need to show that they're, Thinking about they need to show that they're that they're thinking about the standards in regards to how they interact with their pieces. Now, I do have this piece of paper that um, I'm going to share with our uh, listener tier people over there on Patreon. If anyone's curious, because we've talked about it before, I think I'm just going to post it in there as kind of a PDF or a downloadable um, to put it in there. But for anyone that wants to do this, if you don't want to pay for access to the Patreon for this, all you need to do is figure out. However you want to rate them, and I talk about having the mini lesson, uh, they need to show the evidence of the mini lesson, they need to show evidence of the writing process, their grammar, and uh, the structure of it needs to fit whatever they're doing. So, for instance, grammar and poetry is different than grammar in nonfiction. It's used differently. And then lastly uh, is... Just kind of their overall, did they achieve what they wanted to achieve? And I do it on a scale of one to four. That's because of the rating system we have here in Texas on star. It's just, I figured that was an easy way to kind of just funnel that in. Um, and, and that's what it was. And so when I sit down to talk to students, I'll say, okay, so what mini lessons did you use here? Or what lessons or whatever? And they speak to it. And if they can't, they get a low rating. And eventually they start learning that. And they're like, well, I use this standard from last six weeks. And I'm like, okay. I always tell them that it's okay to, if you're going to publish something and it's based on maybe something else we've learned or you circled back to something or you kind of just wrote something without really any regard to what we're studying in class, that's fine. I think those pieces should be published and I encourage that, but those don't get graded high. And that's why I always give my students kind of ample time to turn in as many pieces as they want. I'm like, if you want to turn in, you know, if your goal is one piece of six weeks or nine weeks or whatever, and you want to write one for yourself and then write one for for the class, so to speak, you can do that. This is just my way of kind of putting some barriers around where they're going, just to focus them a little bit. And then as the year goes on, and especially during the group that I uh, taught for two years, I leaned less and less on this because it really – it wasn't as needed. And then I just kind of – I would put limitations in certain areas. Like we have to do a nonfiction piece. We have to do an informational piece. And there you have your, your standards based grading there as well. So I don't know if that's really helping, uh, Marissa so much, but I think Marissa, if your goal is to grade it as authentically as possible, try to do that just within the frame of what is the standard? What, what should kids be going for? In what you're studying. Now, if you have a really open atmosphere, which it kind of sounds like you do, and you're not really focusing on the standards, then, and you don't have to, then I would say, I mean, I don't see anything wrong with creating how, what, what, uh, something that you feel is valid for what they're doing. But in terms of just craft and draft and Pam Ochoa and myself, what we do, it's always based on the standard. We just try to make that as authentic 
um, as we, we possibly can. It's still school and there's still grades. Um, and there's all of that. We just try to, you know, we almost try to manipulate the system. So we got it. Do you have anything to add to that before we move on? Well, also include conference grade strategies, you know, those group groupings and things like that. Uh, Those are all separate grades for me. Those are all daily grades. So the actual rubric based uh, final paper is their actual test grade. So that's, I don't know if that makes a difference or not, but that is what I do. All right. That's all right. All right. So moving on, let's talk grammar because you know, just as well as I know, this is for some reason in writing, this is all we ever talk about. It feels like, you know, I, not when I say we, I don't mean you and me because you and I almost hardly ever broach this just in casual conversation. But anytime we're training or anything like that, there's always this heavy emphasis on grammar. And I think, you know, it's for good reason. You know, grammar is important. It's something that teachers, especially the higher up you go, the more frustrating it can be to have kids that aren't using commas correctly or even capitalizing things or anything like that. Um but at the same time, it's sometimes I feel like we put too much weight to it in the classroom. Why? Let's start there. That seems like a, a, a nice place to start on grammar as any is. Why do you think there's such an emphasis on 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 grammar in in writing instruction, especially as you as you go up? Like, why is it why is it so much in the spotlight? Well, I think you've got two two camps of thought, if you will. Some people feel like you can't really write correctly if you don't have the grammar. So they think you've got to learn the grammar before you can actually write. Other people feel like you should be able to write, and it's through writing that you learn how to do the grammar. And I guess there's a third camp, and that is you write, but then you have to teach the grammar within the context of writing, which is probably where you and I fall. And that is, it's not a separate entity. Um, It Grammar is not going to matter and if they don't really have a reason to use it. So it's got to be in context. And a lot of times they're going to remember it if it's a problem they're trying to solve. So the best way for them to have a problem that they're trying to solve is you put them in a situation where they're going to have a problem, and that is writing daily and then encouraging them to publish. Because it's once they have to publish it, once they know it's going to be seen out there in their in their real world or our real world or any world, as long the minute they know it's going to be seen and uh, by people who matter to them. And I hate to, not all teachers, you know, I mean, not all kids, I said that wrong, you know, think that the teacher is the one that matters. They're just great at get it done. This is your job. But if you can figure out a way to to make it authentic where it's in front of the peers, and that's where your publishing wall, I think it was uh, the publishing wall we saw last week, you know, uh, there, I think that was uh, one that marks, or is it Matt? I can't remember all of a sudden. Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. Uh, you're muted. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember off the top of my head. Okay. Well, anyway, it's from New Zealand. I know that. But, um, but that particular, uh, you know, those, it's going to be seen. And so when it's seen, it becomes a problem because they're like, oh, I got to make sure that it's, you know, it makes sense. I got to make sure that it it looks right. I don't want to be judged by not knowing something that everybody should know. And so then it becomes an issue. Well, now they have a reason to to learn the grammar. I so, agree. I, I think uh, that is 
you know, we'll kind of analyze some of the other ones here in a bit. But, you know, to start off, I really do think the the best way to kind of get writers to care about grammar in the first place is to give them a reason to care about putting their stuff out there in the first place. Right. And so in in a classroom, you know, the when if you start with rules and you can't do this and you can't do that and um and it, it's a constant every time i turn something in i know i'm going to get things marked up or whatever or anything like that you're it's almost like you're 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 stunting your your the growth of the workshop already because it's so focused on what's wrong versus what's right. And I know it can be maddening, you know, it's maddening in seventh grade when kids aren't using capital I's or, you know, even the most basic grammar stuff, but it's also not the end of the world. Like you have to keep in mind that like I was listening to a podcast not too long ago and they were saying how they had done uh, some experiments on, what type of tweets get the most engagement? And by far today, the tweets that get so many, so like so many more reactions and retweets and stuff are tweets that have bad grammar. So like nothing's capitalized and no period at all. And these are getting high engagement versus something that looks really proper and it follows kind of all the grammar rules. And they don't really know why this is, but it's coming up with um, the idea that. It, it's almost like a, if something's written really perfect on the internet, it's almost like a statement, right? It's almost like a, a something official, even if it's not. Like even if it's just you saying, you know, I went and bought dog food today. I had a good day, right? Something like that. Um, it, it just seems a little bit more declarative, so to speak. And so we're in this really interesting time where – the youth and the language, and I feel like this is always the case, right? Especially with slang or anything like that. The the youth always talks different. It, the language changes, it adapts, and then when they go to school, we're like, oh my god, I don't even know, recognize what you're talking about. They ramble. It is what it is. And so we almost have to feel like as writing workshop teachers, it's almost like this balance of honoring their culture, their community, their era of existing, whatever mm-hmm. that is. But at the same time, teaching them rules that way when they do get outside of their kid bubble and they have to deal with the real world, whether that's in the world of business, in the world of emailing, in the world of, you know, like I, I tell students this all the time. I pitch people I want on the podcast. I cold pitch them all the time, like, big, you know, big and small. I just DM them. I'll share something. I'll email. And that that's a skill set that a lot of these kids are going to have to have in one way or another. And if I sent these grammar error ridden like emails or DMS, no one would ever take me seriously and they would move on. And so there is a very real reason why we want to teach these things. This is obvious. I feel like I'm speaking to the choir, but I feel like where teachers start dividing is the amount of time and the amount of pressure you put on grammar instruction. And I, I don't know, like I feel like, there's so many people who focus on grammar and yet – because here's what happens. And I, I see this even at the high school level right now where people are like, well, what did the kids learn in the year before, right? We say it – we or we say it. We said it to you know the kids that we got and you know, and middle school teachers say about elementary, high school teachers say about middle school. Every, people are teaching grammar, right? And if they're not teaching it, they're putting on programs that teach it. But we keep having these problems. It's the – old adage from my, one of my mentors. She says, 
English teachers feel like they have to start at the beginning every single year. Kids don't know similes and they're in the 11th grade and they, you know, parts they don't. Parts of speech. Yeah, parts of speech and all this other stuff. And it's just, I don't, I think it's this weird myth that exists. Um, I don't know. Why do you think that is, Ochoa? Why do you think that, that every year it feels like kids just ne- have never learned the basics of, of the English language and, and the technical terms? Is it the fact that they're not knowing it or what's the disconnect? Well, I think the disconnect is when you start parsing these sentences, you you start naming what those is what those things are is whatever I don't know how to speak either, but anyway, but the but let's say okay, you have a noun, right? A noun can be used all over the sentence. It can. It can be used as a subject. It can be used as an object. It can be used as an object of the preposition, of the preposition, et cetera, et cetera. It'd be a positive. And then you have the pronoun that can take its place. It can be moved all over the sentence. You have your, you know, your subject pronouns, your object pronouns. And then you have your adjectives or your adverbs. When do they, you know, those go? But the the point is. Just the noun. Let's just think about the noun. You have abstract nouns. You have concrete nouns. You have uh, all kinds of stuff that you can actually do with those nouns. So now you tell the students, you spent all this time and every year, and I've seen it for years, the sixth grade teacher starts with nouns. We're going to start with nouns. We're going to start with collective nouns. We're going to name all these nouns. We're going to we're going to do a little book. And in our little book, we're going to have all these nouns. Okay? They test the kids in a sentence, and the kids miss all the nouns. They can't get them because they're all over the sentence. They don't know where they go or how they go or why they go. Next year, they still don't know nouns. So we start over. We do the nouns. Nouns, nouns, nouns. I've seen this all the way. I mean, I have seen this a lot. And they never get past the nouns. And then I hear the ki- the teachers in the teacher lounge going, oh, these kids, they just don't know any kind of grammar. They can't learn the nouns. It's so simple. But really, a noun isn't all that simple, is it? You have proper nouns. I mean, just think about all the different types of nouns there are. So what we have to do is not that we have to teach Noun. We can even have the kids, and I've done it, where they they know the parts of speech. They have there's eight of them, and you can get them to recite them. And I do actually do that. To be honest, I, I let them know what they are. But the thing is, is it's how do they work with each other? That's what the kids have got to learn. The kids have to see the patterns, and I think that's where, like Jeff Anderson and his his you know his patterns of power. I think he I think he is on something there when we talk about on the right track when he's talking about there's patterns. And if we can teach the students the patterns, then then we can teach them how to uh vary their sentences and things like that. But we don't do it before we don't put the cart before the horse. You know what I mean? We've got to have the kids writing. They've got to have a lot of experience reading. They've got to see it a lot of times. And then we go in and tell them what they're doing and why they're doing it. And uh, and you teach them the patterns. I will tell you that my, uh, I think I shared this with you, but I talked to my son. He's, he's now on his third language that he's learning. And um, guess what we talked about the other day when I talked to him? Parts of speech. He was asking me, Mom, what? remind me what the parts of speech are. He is actually asking me what the parts of speech are. Why? Because he has learned a language that doesn't use the same parts of speech that ours does. And he's learning another language, German, that has the same parts of speech and the same 
sentence structures. So there's one that that he's learning where you have your prepositional phrases and all of that all wrapped up into one word. So what you do is you change your word, kind of how we we change our past participles and our present participles, we change our words, but that one whole that one whole word can have a ton of meaning in it by the way they change the word. But with us, we actually have separate words for those things. And so, but but in Europe, European language and our language, they match. They match. They have, you have prepositional phrases, you have all those parts of speech, and they go together in a certain way so that we can make sense. But not all languages do that. Some languages are completely different. But so it's not until he's, he didn't care about it until he started learning another language. Now he's got to know what they are in order for him to understand. So now guess what he's doing? He's asking, Mom, what is this in English? So he can better understand. So it's when there's a problem that they have to solve, when it becomes important to them, they'll learn it. Well, and I think that's the the key piece. And here's a piece of language that I started using a few years ago, and it really does help. And it's you know, I don't do it in the first conference, probably not the third, probably not even the seventh, but at some point in time when working on a piece or something with a student, I will close to the end, what I'll do, um, and especially as I've built relationships, I'll sit with them and I'll say, you know, I, I really love this idea. I can tell you're passionate about it. I was like, as a reader, I'm struggling right here because I don't think there's enough grammar to make your message clear because that's what... And this is what I try to get across in Rightfully Empowered, where if we approach students as the the be-all, end-all, the arbiter of truth, top-down approach, they're always feeling like they're judged. But if we can work to change that perspective even a little bit to where we can say, you know, as a reader, this is what I'm getting from your piece – as a reader, this is this is where my confusion is or what I really love or anything like that. It just changes that perspective just enough to where I think kids are open to that feedback um, that might be, you know, no one, no one likes to be told when they've done something wrong or whatever. And everyone feels a little dumb in grammar life because there's a lot of nuances. I mean, half my job of revising anything I've written ever is me just adding and deleting commas over and over again until finally I go, well, that's just what it's going to be. I mean, <laughs> it's just at all times because there's all kinds of complexities in writing. This is why we say writing is one of the most rigorous tasks you're ever going to do because there's just so many layers that's happening to make effective communication effective. And so I think from that perspective, um, I think that's really interesting because there's, but it's also to me, the, the reason why I don't stress about it too much is because the, if it doesn't matter how grammatically correct you are, if your message or purpose in your writing doesn't do anything for your intended audience, then it doesn't matter how great it is, right? You, if you, can't uh, 
put real emotion in something or be persuasive or argue something well or respond accordingly to something that might be a little like on a touchy subject or something like that. You're going to struggle in so many aspects of your life. Writing, you know, the, the copywriters of the world, writing good copy is something you, everyone has to do. You know, people, people might not realize this, but when you're, you know, posting something on social media, you're writing copy, Right now, it might just be like, hey, I'm out with the friends or whatever. But a lot of people are trying to get someone to do something. You're trying to get friends to watch TV. You're trying to get them to be involved in something. You're trying to get them to go to your church. You're trying to do all of these things. That takes a level of communication. This is where we say meaning dictates form. I think that is the core of this. And I think that the more we we don't stress that, I think that's when kids start kind of becoming jaded with this process. They're like, oh, yeah, just more grammar practice, you know, uh, I'm just logging into my program and I'm going to do these practice questions that are outside of my writing life. And it really doesn't apply to me at all. I'm just going to do it for the grade and then move on. And then we sit back and go, well, why aren't you using your commas correctly? It's because there's no real reason to do it. you know, they, they might, it might be worth the hit on the grade too. If kids are really jaded with it, like, ah, I'll lose 10 points. That's fine. It doesn't really affect me. It's because they don't care enough about what they're writing and why they're writing it. So I just, I just think that that almost it trumps everything. But I mentioned these programs. Everyone knows I'm not a big fan of programs. But you've used them. I think you've used them more than me, um, mm-hmm. at least some of these things. So let's – everyone knows my opinion about this. But for people who are using those, is there an effective way to put that practice in there to where you, you bring it in every once in a while. When we're talking programs, talking, you know, things like no red ink, quill, anything else. What is, what is a good way to bring the, those in? Out of the two that you've mentioned, I, I really probably have used quill more. Mm-hmm. And that's because it causes the students to uh, merge two sentences, to sentence combine. And the students have to be able to combine parts of a sentence to create new sentences. And and the research that I have read shows that sentence combining, if you really want to teach grammar in kind of in isolation, you do it through sentence combining and sentence separating. And that is, uh, I know that Kilgallen does a lot of that. I, I don't know if he's got, I know he's got middle school. I know he's got high school. I don't know if he's got an elementary book. But I felt like his middle school book is probably even almost too difficult for the kids. But if you can start off with sentence combining, and that's where you take just two simple sentences and you figure out and you just get put them out there and the students figure out a way to combine them. And, uh, and so then when they start combining them, guess what they have to do? They got to figure out how to punctuate them. And so now you've created this problem that they have to figure out. And you also got to figure out how's the best way to combine them. You know, so if they have the same subject, then do you repeat the subject or do you use one subject and then have the two verbs that go, you know, so, so do I do a compound verb phrase? Do I do a compound subject here? Do I, so there are, now they're starting to have problems that they've got to solve. And then I'll start there. And so that's why when I use Quill, uh, Quill forces them to do sentence combining. So sometimes that just keeps me from having to create 
the pages to have them sentence combined. And it does frustrate them some, but that that's why I like Quill. I've not used no red ink. That's more to me for an editing situation. So I think you've got your revision and you've got your editing. And I think revision is where you're dealing with your commas and your uh, colons and your, you know, your, um, what is it, your simple and complex compound sentences and how to put all those together together. Uh, yeah, your parallelisms, anything like that, you know, like that's all revision. And then your editing to me is more of, did you use the right, you know, is your period correct? Or you just go back and correct any of those mistakes that you've made. Do you have apostrophes in the right spot? Do you have your quotation marks in the right spot? So that's to me more punctuation uh, in the sense of, you know, do I have it all? And I think too, Another thing that I like to do is give sentences that can be read different ways, but if you punctuate it wrong, um, and there's a book called Eats, Shoots, and Leaves. Yeah. You know, and that's one, uh, he eats, he shoots, and then he leaves, or does he eat, does he eat, shoots, and leaves? And so when you, so I like to put sentences like that together and let the kids kind of play around with them to see all the different variations that you can do. And so you kind of put a challenge out there and you just introduce it that way. Now you, now they're, they're in their, they're in their craft book. They've been a draft book, draft book, and they're writing, right? So now you have them go back into their, their piece, whatever piece they, they're working on. And you say, okay, We've learned about, I don't know, we've combined sentences that create compound sentences. Go into your writing, locate some sentences you can combine. Now, on that left side of that draft book, let let me see you combine them. Now, now I can see that they're actually doing it in their writing. Which sentence, which way works better for you? Which one, when you're talking about meaning dictates form, which one gives you the best meaning and the more clear meaning for your reader? That's the one you need to use in your final draft. And so that's kind of how I teach the the, the grammar. And that's how I use uh, Quill. And I think No Red Ink is more on the editing side. It's just a little extra practice uh, for those. But, uh, but that's, I use them some just to kind of supplement. But I do most of the teaching myself. And I usually have them. I, and also, the other thing I do is I hit a lot of this stuff in my conferences. I had one student, she was brilliant. She has, she knew all, you know, she's like, I know everything. So I'm like, okay, that's good. And she was a good writer. Don't get me wrong. But so we sit down at a conference and I go, explain to me, you've got, you've got three commas in this one sentence. Can you tell me why you're using those commas there? Tell me what the purpose is. Read it back to me. Well, when she read it back to me, she's like, uh, I, I don't know. I said, okay, well, let's, what's the purpose? What do you want to say in this sentence? What do you want it to say? Because I'm not sure if you're saying it correctly with all these pauses in here, you know? And then what we decided was she needed to separate the sentences because she had too many thoughts in one sentence and it wasn't clear. So then she, I said, well, let's put a period here. Let's rewrite this sentence. And so then, so sometimes it's sentence separation yeah. is important. Well, anyway. and that's everything you said there, the, what I, and I, I too would do most of this in conferences. Right. And then what I would do is if I saw something that was happening all the time, like mm-hmm. <clears throat> I remember last year, a lot of students were, 
they were they were adding commas to things, but they were basically basically creating comma splices all the time. And right. so once I saw that, I was like, okay. So I brought up a mini lesson. We took a, um, I, I did it both ways. I took a, a passage that, uh, like was from a book, and then I just kind of copied and pasted it like a like a paragraph or whatever. And then we started playing with it right as a class to where in the word processor, you know, we'd add a period, a comma, we would break the line, we would do all kinds of stuff. Um, and basically the idea, but I've also done it with their writing where I'll pull one up and we'll kind of go through that process. And just like you said, my goal is to kind of teach them, you know, the, how to fix a comma splice and how to avoid them. But we did it through kind of like this playing of language. Like what happens if we put a period here? What happens if we take something that's kind of a comma splice and we make it two sentences? All right. What happens if we make it a complex sentence or a compound sentence and just playing with it? And that way kids, they, they start to see the differences and they, cause what we really I always go back to what are we trying to get kids to do? What we're trying to get them to do isn't necessarily to recite grammar rules, which, you know, that's fine if they can, but the importance is that they can implement rules as steadily as they possibly can, right? Now, I look up rules all the time in my writing to make sure I'm using something correctly, if I'm using the right version of a word or anything. So I think that we overplay this idea that you should just have all of this ingrained in your brain. I have made it just fine not having every single grammar rule just merged into my brain. Um, But, Ocho is judging me now, but we have... um, (laughs) So I, I think that's a little bit of a over a, an overstatement to say that kids need to really have all of this memorized. But what we want them to do is be able to write as effective as they can in a way that gets their message across as effectively as possible as often as they can, right? So the idea is that kids can sit down and they can write relatively well and they can kind of catch some of their their common issues and move on from there. And the really the only way to do that is to give kids so much practice and so much exposure to different ways of writing, different solutions to problems, right? There's there's people who like the when authors sit down to write, you know, so often it's like, man, maybe maybe my closing sentence here should go to the front, right? So that's more of a revision process. But if you're talking grammar, you know, it's like, man, I, I don't know. Should I have four stilted sentences all back to back? Maybe I do. Maybe that gets the point across in a way. Or maybe should I start combining some sentences and really playing with it? Maybe I should delete words. And so it's really this this word play, this 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 uh this process of really messing with language to find out what works and what doesn't and definitely part of that is understanding what a sentence is what makes a sentence how, how do you know you mm-hmm. have a sentence um but it I think that sometimes we overstress some of those basic things because if we can get kids to start playing with language, if we can get them to start playing with word choice and and where to put periods and where to put commas or where not to put them, I think that's such a more interesting way to learn in general, right? It's like, you know, I can learn vocabulary words, but why not have like, you know, why not do a room transformation to learn these things? You know, it's just, I think it's just a small tweak 
in a in this in this effort, I suppose. And I, I, honestly, it makes it more fun for the teacher too because. I don't know. I mean, I've met a lot of English teachers in my time, and I really, I've only met a few who would just like teach grammar all day, every day. They're they're out there, and there's probably some that listen to us. And I know you've well, talked about sentence diagramming and how you actually enjoy I, it I like do. a weirdo. And so, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I do use it. Uh, everybody, I know you do. I've I, seen you I do, do it. use. I do use diagramming. Yeah, so no shade. But I don't use the whole thing about diagram because the right. problem with diagramming is the lesson becomes about how to diagram. And the diagram is actually supposed to show students how words fit together yeah. and how they work together. But what ends up happening is there's so many rules for diagramming that the lesson becomes about diagramming and the the grammar is lost. So when I do diagramming, it's more or less underlining the unit of thought. And I and I talk about sentences. I don't talk at this at this level, I start talking to them not about sentences. I make sure they understand what a sentence is, but like you talked about the complexity of sentences. So uh, a guy named Kellogg taught called it a unit of thought. Uh, he was from uh, the University of Texas. I can't remember his first name, but it's Dr. Kellogg. But anyway, so I got that idea of a unit of thought. So so I started talking about to, with students, what is a unit of thought? And a unit of thought is something that has a verb and a subject, right? To have a complete thought. I can, but it doesn't necessarily have to have a subject. It can be an understood subject. So like I could tell, and I talked to this about my, my students, I can say run and I can look at you and say run and you understand what I mean. I don't have to say you, Jacob, over there, and that you need to run now. You know, I don't, I don't have to do that. I can look at you, and the right moment is right. I can just say run, and and the subject is understood as you. I want you to do it, and so you have to have that verb to have a complete thought. But you don't necessarily. But if I just said Jacob, you're going to be waiting for the rest of my sentence looking at me like I'm an idiot because I'm not finishing it, right? Because you don't, there's no meaning there other than you, I've got your attention. And so, so that's one of the things that I talk to the students about. So I teach them units of thought. And then from there, um, some units of thought are dependent on other units of thought. And so that's usually what I do. And I use lines underneath them to represent the unit of thought. And so the kids will underline like maybe a paragraph in their in their in their uh, draft book, and what they do is they underline that paragraph, and then they go through and they divide the lines, kind of like you would in diagramming, where the where the verb is. So that way they can do they can determine if it has a unit of thought or not. So I usually use that, but I don't go any further than that with the diagramming. So just do the first basic diagram, cut the sentence in two. But that, I mean, it, and this just ties into what you were saying earlier is it really is, it's kind of knowing, and I, I feel like this is a probably a theme of how you and I both talk about these things is it's knowing when to do something, right? It's, right. it's the, when do you pull in a classic? When do you pull in a class novel? When do you do literature circles? When do you focus on independent reading, independent writing? Like there's all of, the, we have all of these tools in our toolbox and there's certain people out there who want to push their single way of doing it or their, their one process. Um, and that's great for them. I'm sure they have 
wonderful financials to back up why we do it. You and I have almost perched on this hill of, well, let's analyze why you would do one of these things. <laughs> right. That's almost like everything we do. Now we kind of, we, we have a couple core things we don't really stray away from, but I think that's, I think it's so much more nuanced. It's also honest because as much as I, I rail against programs all the time, I use them all the time. Like there's, it's, it's more of a, it's the the diehard, like, I'm going to make everything about writing instruction based on these simple types of grammar questions that they can do on any of these programs. That is what I'm, I kind of right. rail against. But using it for extra practice, using it if your kids are really struggling on something, sure, throw it in there. Let's see if it works. The worst thing you can do is not try to fix something, right? <laughs> like that's the That's the biggest issue, but... I think approaching it, the the more you approach it as what do writers need to communicate effectively, I, I think that is – I think that's the right way to kind of go about grammar instruction, right? And in some instances, it, it really does pay to know why we capitalize certain things. Capitalization is – is extremely useful. I mean, if you think about, I mean, that, that, and that goes through uh, literary analysis too, especially if you talk about Emily Dickinson, she capitalized all kinds of random things. And that's a part of analysis that kids will have to do. Or mm-hmm. when, you, when you're reading something and then something is capitalized, that's different. Like even something as, as basic as that can have really big implications for students that start reading more advanced literature. So this stuff has a place. It's extremely important, but it, it, I think it's also important to not kill the love of writing for the, for the, right. the, the sacred cows of grammar. Like <laughs> if your kids are miserable doing it, maybe we should find a different way. That's kind of where I draw the line. Right. And I think that's when you're talking about those sacred cows, that, that, that's interesting. That's a, that's an interesting way of, of putting it. I went the long version and talked about nouns like they were <laughs> peppered in the world of grammar, but they really are peppered. They're everywhere. They are. Well, I mean, uh, you know, I think we, uh, I think we, we, we got grammar covered today. I don't know if we said something and you have a question, come back, send us a DM, yeah. send us I a like message on, on, yeah, or on Patreon. Maybe we'll do a grammar thing. Maybe that's a, another bonus video that we can do. We can have fun with some grammar talk um, if people are down. But I know I'm going to end up sharing um, the, the writing rubric that I love to use. It showed a lot of growth. Um, I'll be talking about that rubric again and Rightfully Empowered here um, in a few months down in San Antonio. I haven't even told you that, Miss Ocho. I have a presentation huh? in San Antonio. Uh, but, yeah, you're a big deal. Yeah, we'll see. But um, so, so what are you doing in San Antonio, Jacob? Well, they I don't know didn't I, tell me ahead of time. I don't know if I can officially announce it just yet. You so can't have announce to. it. You must be somebody big. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Crafted Draft. Support us on Patreon if you want bonus episodes, bonus videos that no one else has access to except for our Patreon listeners. Come back next week for another podcast. Send us a question if you have one. Subscribe if you have not already. Leave a review and a rating. All of those things help us keep the lights on. Thank you so much. And know that we are here for you. 